a few Christmases ago, my mom gave me an old photo album of my grandma's, and it was full of photos from when she went to Europe with a bunch of her girlfriends in like 1967 or sometime like that. And I have a thing for travel and old photographs, so I loved flipping through page after page of the film photos. And at the back of the photo album, there were a bunch of random things from the trip. There were like boating passes, hotel restaurant menus, itineraries. But the thing that was most interesting to me were the letters. And there was a letter from one man that especially caught my eye because he wasn't my grandpa. And when I asked my mom about it, she said, oh, yeah, Alma had she had tons of boyfriends. And I was shocked because I'd never thought about my grandma having a life outside the context that I knew her in. I quickly realized that there was so much more to my grandma than meets the eye. I'm Ella, and I like Kit Kats, murder mysteries, and cardigans with pockets. I'm Bryn, and I like rain, cats, and the smell of grass. And I'm Soraya. I like fun earrings, chocolate custard, and hiking through old growth forests. Welcome to the Modern Story Podcast, episode number six, New Light. Today, we're telling stories about seeing family members in a new light. Have you guys ever had an experience like mine flipping through the photos? I actually have had so many weird experiences, like going through um, old photo albums of my parents, specifically their wedding album. Just seeing my dad especially before he perhaps got a beer belly and started (laughs) balding. He had a full head of hair. He was buff. I mean, maybe a little attractive if that's not weird. (laughs) But (laughs) it's just weird to see him like so long ago just as someone that like an age that I would know someone now and just him having like teenage characteristics versus my dad and I think I've always just wondered like did my mom get in trouble as a kid or did she do bad things or was she just always perfect as the way that I see her now yeah no that I feel like that's a pretty common thing for everyone but it's definitely super weird Mm -hmm. anyways let's get started with Bryn and her story called who I am becoming So on my last day of my sophomore year of high school, I walked into volleyball practice thinking it was going to be totally normal. I was ready to start my summer once I got home, but that practice was very far from normal. With about five minutes left of practice, I jumped up, landed on my knee, and heard a big snap. And all I remember was laying there screaming and fainting and going in and out of consciousness, and I just kind of couldn't breathe. Once I was able to calm down, my parents took me to the ER, and we sat there for hours on end, and I almost, I I remember being there till almost 2 a.m., and to make matters worse, I had my first day of my first job the next morning at 7 a.m. that I had never done before, so it just was like everything that could be stressful just was, Um, and that night I didn't really find anything out about what had happened to my leg, but After about a month of going to doctor's appointments, I found out that I had completely ruptured my ACL and tore my MCL, LCL, and had a rip in my meniscus. And I really had never heard so much bad news in the span of a month. It was surgery. It came painkillers, months of PT, and just so much time with my own thoughts. And I would often think, why did this happen to me? Or why aren't I recovering faster? Why does no one understand how hard this is? And It was simple things like, why can't I go to the bathroom, walk, change my clothes, or make food by myself? And I just felt so helpless throughout all of that. After my surgery, I just laid in bed literally all day, and I would avoid getting up at all costs because even simple things like going to the bathroom took almost 20 minutes, and it was just me screaming and crying and complaining basically all day. So I just kind of had to sit there for 24 hours a day. And people would come to visit me, but with the medicine, medicine I was on I just would fall asleep mid-sentence or not be able to communicate with them and that was just really frustrating because I I felt like I should be so happy that people were there but 
I really just got frustrated. I tried things like coloring, playing games, or calling people, but I just couldn't find anything that truly helped me. The injury itself was bad, but the part that affected me the most was how bad my emotional and mental health got, and I started just to feel nothing. I kind of felt like my life was just blank. I felt really alone throughout the long year and a half recovery that consisted of PT, doctor's appointments, and just overall sadness. I felt alone the entire time, but there was someone that made me feel not so alone, and that person was my mom. Throughout my recovery, I kind of just complained all day, and I just got so bored that I just would complain, and I'm sure that was pretty miserable for my mom to go through, but she did a really good job of being there for me, even, it, even when it was hard for her. We would have a lot of versions of the same exact conversation where I would say things like, Mom, I can't do this on my own. Mom, I'm bored. Mom, I'm sad. I need help. And she would just reply with, you can do this, Bryn. My mom gave me support that no one else could, and I usually think to myself, why in the world did it take an injury to get so close with her? But I don't really know the answer to it, but I also don't really care because my mom is now someone I consider one of my best friends, and my mom understands me. I grew up really close to my family, but it was nothing special, and now that I have something really special with my mom, I'm very grateful for that. I feel like a lot of people at 19 want to be nurses or work in an office or just have a normal job, but when I think of how I want to be in the future, I just want to be like my mom. My mom works at General Mills as a business operations analysis, and that's definitely not what I'm saying I want to be, but I want to have things like her character, humor, drive, and overall personality. I noticed myself using this injury as my only personality trait, and I let it define me, but I now know that I let it define me because I'm proud of the relationship I have with my mom. Thank you so much for sharing that, Bryn. Um, we just have a few questions for you. So besides encouraging you through your recovery, how did you and your mom grow closer in the past few years? Um, I think it's actually really simple. I think we just learned how to communicate. And growing up, I just would avoid conversation. And I was really quiet and just didn't want to talk about feelings or anything more than just surface level conversation. So I think throughout this, we had to have tough conversations. So I learned how to just talk to her. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm also wondering, um, what is the one characteristic or trait of your mom's that you admire the most or what you want to take with, like, throughout your life? Um, I definitely would say it's her humor. She has, like, a group of three other friends that she hangs out with that she's known for most of her life. And, like, when they get together, they're just the funniest people in the whole world. And I think <laughs> having something like that would be just so fun. And they do the weirdest things. But I just, I love how much people think, like, how likable she is and how funny mm -hmm. people think she is. Here is Ella Roberts and her story called My Sweet Lady. So my junior year of high school, my great-grandma, who I also call my Gigi, I don't know how this came about. Um, we just started calling her that because I would confuse her with my other grandma, who was my mom's mom, but this is my great-grandma. So I just called her Gigi from the day I could talk, I guess. Um, and she was super sick. Uh, she was in a an assisted living home for about two weeks. And one day I got a call. Um, I was leaving work, and I was told, you need to get over here now. She's not well. Um, this was during COVID as well. So there was a lot of restrictions as to who could visit and who could not. But because of her condition, um, visitors were open. Like, they were open to having visitors. Um, so one specific moment or I guess things that would happen, for example, were like her, um, like soaking her sheets. She, her body was giving out on her and she just couldn't function normally. And every time this happened, 
it just made me so sad to see her um, just so helpless because for so long I had seen her as someone who was so strong. And so I would just hold her hand through it. I would buzz the button for her um, to get the nurses up there. And every time I knew that the lady, the nurse with pink scrubs, would swallow her up um, in a sheet like a baby. And the nurse with the aqua-colored scrubs would replace the white sheet um, that she had soiled. And I'd seen them do it so many times that I could probably have done it myself. So every day for two weeks, I visited my Gigi at Catholic Elder Care in her small apartment. And every time I walked in, I heard the humming of the oxygen tank and the TV on the lowest volume. Each time being told, we don't think she has much time left. But after seeing her for how many days, I started to take that phrase more and more lightly. Um, the moment I walked through the doors each day, I would stand at the edge of her bed and just look at her. She looked really peaceful. Um, and then I would grab her hand and I could see her eyelids um, start to twitch. And she would immediately wake up with a jolt of light and say, hi, my sweet girl, how are you? As if she was not quite literally on her deathbed and just wondering how I'm doing. Conversations for the most part went on as they normally would other than the occasional visit from the nurses handing out meds. Um, her bed, the one that sat beside the hospital bed that used to be her bed that she slept in every night, um, still had to be made every day. Um, even though she couldn't digest any food, that did not mean that she couldn't have room for dessert. Um, specifically, I remember one time I was feeding her from a gallon of rainbow sherbet, and she just <laughs> she, she wanted more sherbet than I was giving her, and so she just took it out of my hands and she said, give me that. Um, I was just not giving her enough, I guess. And um, for two weeks, I spent doing whatever I could to make her comfortable. Um, I manicured her nails. Um, I went and bought her a new set of pajamas because apparently she needed them, even though she was just wearing a hospital gown for two weeks. Um, I cleaned the apartment. I did a puzzle for her that she had never finished. I watched TV, basically waiting for my grandmother to die. Um, that sounds really dark, but that's what we were doing, really. It was, it was a really strange feeling being told that she was going to die, but then she wasn't. Um, eventually, it became a lot for my grandma, so her daughter, my mom's mom. Um, she kept saying, I can't watch her suffer anymore, and I was confused. I didn't understand why she was using the word suffer. Um, I knew, of course, that the circumstances were not ideal, but she still had her personality, she was still her, and she still knew who we were, which is what I was most thankful for. However, it wasn't I, until I had left the room each day that my Gigi was beginning to accept her fate. Um, my grandma spent most of her nights with her mom sleeping in there um, beside her, and she told my mom that she would wake up in the middle of the night to my Gigi just screaming, crying in pain, begging her for her daughter to put her out of her misery. And she even would say, please just let me die. Um, she was starting to have dreams in the middle of the night. Uh, she would mumble super angrily. She would swear under her breath like she was talking to someone. And that was, that was just odd because my Gigi had never sworn. I had always seen her as this put together Catholic who just, you know, that, that would never come out of her mouth if she was conscious. Um, and I realized that she was reflecting. She was going through her life like it was a movie reel. 
And her life before the cancer, before the prescriptions, before I was born, this is all I had known about my Gigi. She had been a a walking drugstore since I had um, been born. Uh, She had suffered from colon cancer, breast cancer, heart failure, and a number of other health issues. Um, I would make time to see her often simply because I never knew when she maybe would die. Um, She was in and out of hospitals, assisted living homes and rehab facilities, and I think I just felt bad. I felt bad for her and the nasty cycle I felt that she was living. Um, Soon I began to realize that maybe our relationship, from my perspective, was built on pity and guilt. But for her, it was something that gave her life, something that quite literally kept her alive, giving her more years than she should have had, and in this moment, two more weeks than she should have had. Eventually, uh, my mom said we needed to stop visiting. My grandmother's body was giving out on her, but her mind was so anxious with thoughts that she could not rest peacefully. The last day I saw her, I told her it was okay. I told her she could let go and that there was nothing left here for her to hold on to. We would be okay, she would be okay, and I would see her again eventually. And her last parting gift to me was her mother's mother's ring, which is something I now wear around my neck every day. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Ella. Um, where do you see your great-grandmother in your day-to-day life now? Um, that's a really good question. I see her throughout my day-to-day mostly in myself, which sounds a little strange, but like, I'm fully aware that I have a very large sweet tooth, and I know that's from her, and I love to bake. It's so like relaxing and soothing to me, and that's something that we would do all the time together. And like I still do puzzles like and play the card games that we would play together. So I think I just see her, like me doing the things that we would do together that I know that she brought into my life for me. My question is, what was your favorite thing about your grandma? My favorite thing about my grandma is probably her strength mostly because she was just this frail old old little lady but she never gave up she was so strong like she had a walker she was supposed to use she never used it she tried to get up so many times and would break pretty much every bone in her body but she was (laughs) not going to give up she was not going to go to a nursing home unless she absolutely had to um so yeah she was she's very inspiring lady in my life And next is Soraya's story, We Eat Hills for Breakfast. I stood over my 1987 Nishiki Olympic road bike with this deep sense of dread. There was a 20-second break before the red stoplight in front of me turned green, but it was not enough for me to catch my breath. So too soon, the light turned green, and I wiped the sweat from underneath my bike helmet, and I struggled to get momentum as my dad pedaled ahead of me. And he seemed totally fine at the site because in front of us there was this massive hill. I mean, like, I couldn't even see the other side. And so I was dreading it. He seemed fine. I tried to ignore the fact that my legs felt like they'd melted into the already too hot July sun, except ignoring that feeling was impossible. So I decided to complain about it. My dad, a few feet in front of me, glanced back and shouted, you've got this, we eat hills for breakfast. And I responded with as much air from my lungs as I could, mus- as I could muster. But I've already had breakfast. Then we eat hills for lunch. Well, I'm not hungry. This interaction wasn't new. In fact, it happened almost every time we trained for RAGBRAI that summer. RAGBRAI stands for Register's Annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa, and it's a rite of passage for literally anyone with a connection to Iowa. My dad, being from northeastern Iowa himself, was eager to share this with me. 
He had even done the whole ride himself in 1987 when he was 13 years old, trailing behind his dad on an old 10-speed. And the idea of biking across the state of Iowa with my dad sounded like so much fun. Just not when it meant waking up at 7 a.m. to do hill training. No, absolutely not. At this point, I was so annoyed with my dad. I was annoyed that one of his favorite hobbies seemed like the easiest thing in the world to him, but my face was bright red and I was visibly struggling. So, anyways, I was in the lowest gear possible on my bike, slowly making my way up to the top. My shoes were tucked into basket pedals, and they were spinning as fast as they could to barely keep my bike moving forward. And what felt like an eternity later, at least just enough time for my legs to now feel like they had evaporated into the humid air, I crested the top. I immediately felt the change and began coasting down the other side of the hill. I tucked my knees against the frame of my bike and bent my back so the words on my blue and orange Cafe Hollander cycling jersey could be read by the birds. My brand spanking new REI cycling glasses kept my eyes dry as the tear of tears as the wind whipped around me. My dad laughed as I zipped past him with a big smile on my face. And I had biked the hill. I had done it. And I had biked every hill before that. And I would continue on to complete Ragbri with my dad. And in doing so, I got to see a different side of him. He wasn't just my dad encouraging me to keep going, saying we eat hills for breakfast. He was my dad with fun hobbies and interesting scars and quirky stories. Spending that whole summer training together included some really early mornings and bad sunburns, twisted handlebars, and gravel-filled scrapes, but it brought us closer together, and that's what I remember most. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, my question is, outside of biking, how does your dad support you? Yeah, he really supports me in almost every, like in every aspect of my life. He's always been super um, supportive in like the sports I play. Um, I played rugby in high school and he was my number one fan, learning all about the sport so he could be an expert. Um, he's also been very supportive of my education and me just kind of doing what I want to do in my life. So I'm really grateful for that. That's super cool. I also have a question. Um, do you have any other similar interests that you share with your dad? Like, what else do you do together? Yeah, we're actually very similar. Um, he kind of has a book hoarding problem. <laughs> um, my mom gets annoyed because he seems to be always getting a new book. And he always says it's fine because it's used, but our <laughs> shelves are full. And so I'm a big reader, too. So um, that's something we share that I love. That's super cool. Um, yeah, so what have we learned today from all our stories? I personally have learned from all of our stories that the roles that certain people take on in our life are not necessarily what have defined them their entire lives. Like, my Gigi is my Gigi, but before she was just Evelyn. But I've never called her Evelyn. She's Gigi. But that's just a role that she was given as soon as I was born. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I feel like it's so, like, it's so weird to see them from that different perspective, mm -hmm. but really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I think something I've learned is that all these experiences are kind of weird, and some people might not understand your own experience, but they do happen to a lot of people, and I think everybody in the entire world, if they thought about their mom in a different light, it would be kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, do you ever think about... Like, if your mom was your age, would you be friends with her? Right, yeah. All the time. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I would be. <laughs> a 
Okay, we would also like to thank um, some people for helping us out on this Modern Story podcast at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you to Professor Chris Softner for his teaching assistant assistance for man- maintaining the podcast studio and giving us access to it. Yeah, and thank you to this class and our professors Susan Brooks and Scott Winter for pushing us out of our comfort zones. And we should thank each other for our edits. <laughs> yes, thank you, Sarai and Bryn. <laughs> Look for the next episode of Modern Story Podcast, which is about fearing the future. And lastly, go tell your mother, nail lady, your dermatologist, your butcher <laughs> about Modern Story. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>